Hello and welcome to this Windhorse Publications podcast. My name is Dama Mega. I'm the Publishing Director at Windhorse Publications and I'm here to talk about books, books about mindfulness, meditation and Buddhism. This is our first podcast and to kick us off, we have the first of a two-part interview with Bhikkhu Analeo, who very kindly joined me for an early morning conversation. Bhikkhu Analeo is a monk scholar and someone whose translations and interpretations of early Buddhist suttas have been really influential for the academic study of Buddhism and also for people who practice the Dharma, practice meditation. He was born in Germany, ordained in Sri Lanka, and now lives at the Barre Center for Buddhist Studies, where he combines a life on retreat with prolific writing. I specifically wanted to ask Bhikkhu Analeo about two books that he published recently. Both of them were written for mindfulness practitioners and teachers who want to know a bit more about the Buddhist background to this widely used set of techniques and approaches for greater presence and awareness. So a very warm welcome, Bhikkhu Analeo. Good morning. So um, thank you. And uh, I, I've got a couple of questions for you. Let's start with um, some of those books that in fact came out at the end of last year. We published a series of two books that come as a pair in some ways. The one is called Introducing Mindfulness, Buddhist Background and Practical Exercises. And the other one is called Mindfulness in Early Buddhism, um, Characteristics Characteristics and functions. And both of them seem to have been born, if you like, out of the same wish uh, as, a, as a, an intervention into traditional, uh, into mindfulness as it's used currently. Maybe you could say a little bit about why you wrote these two. Well, it um, started uh, at uh, doing a retreat, teaching a retreat together with uh, John Kabat-Zinn. Mm at IMS, the Inside Meditation Society, which is kind of the most ancient and most well-known place for this traditional Vipassana meditation in the West. And we were kind of just opening this up as a space for dialogue between the more traditional Vipassana kind of community and the people, particularly MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction. And so we were about halfway into the retreat and there were close to 100 people and many of them were his close friends or students. And so in front of everybody, at some point, John just turned over to me and said, Panta, did I say or do anything wrong? Hmm. And that struck me very strongly because, you see, I mean, if I had had that question, I would have taken him by the side, you know, say, let's go outside, I'm going to ask you something, but not in front of everybody. Mm. And I was really touched by the humility. Mm. And then at some point, I, I, it, it made me kind of really think over the whole situation. And I realized that earlier, I had had some kind of, um, yeah, I can say arrogance. Because as a Buddhist scholar, I see some of these mindfulness people write about Buddhism, and it's just sometimes plain rubbish. Mm. They just don't know. And I had this kind of like, ah, these guys don't even know this, don't even know that. And at that point, I suddenly realized, yeah, Anali, but you can't expect them to know that. Mm. They haven't studied Buddhism. They studied psychology, they studied medicine. How would they know? Mm. 
And I suddenly realized that myself and pretty much uh, to the best of my knowledge, most of my colleagues in the academic field of Buddhist studies, we have not really done our duty. Mm. We're just sticking in our things. And sometimes we look over there and go like, I don't want to have anything to do with that. That's commercial. Mm. They don't know. But actually what we should do is to, 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 to make our knowledge accessible, mm. particularly as there is a, they call it the second generation of mindfulness-based interventions, where after the first generation was very nervous about any connection with Buddhism as they were trying to establish themselves in the medicine and hospital field as something to be taken serious. The second generation is now wanting to look at these Buddhist roots because they realize without looking at these historical precedents, we don't really understand fully what mindfulness is, what we are doing. Mm. And so I decided it would be good if I can invest some of my time into just helping to clarify these things. And I realized that I need to do it in, in two ways. One way would be this more academic type of detailed research that I normally do, mm. giving all the Chinese and lots of footnotes. But another way also to have a simple way that uh, general people who have interest in that can just really access the main pieces of information as I understand them, of course. I mm. have no copyright on saying this is what the Buddha said or this is the truth. I'm just saying that my, my, my way of working and understanding this quality. And this is how these um, twin books came about. Mm. Basically coming together and the introducing mindfulness really meant for the general, some, someone just done an MBSR course, for example, and says, hey, I would like to know a little bit more about this Buddhist background, but I want it simple and clear. Yeah. Yeah. And the other book is then more for those who are actually fully involved in research on mindfulness in the field of psychology, who are willing to go a little bit more on the academic uh, current or level, and are willing to really look at what are all the different ways how mindfulness is used in the suttas. So let's start a little bit with the Introducing Mindfulness book. So that one has um, is, as you say, oriented to a slightly more generic readership, somebody who might be exposed to mindfulness in other contexts who wants to learn a little bit more. And you've actually got, uh, so it's sort of developmental that book, isn't it, from introducing some of the basics about mindfulness and also, um, in a way, helping people to develop their practice from daily reflections, the daily mindfulness exercises, all the way to a more formal, seated, um, in a way, enduring meditation practice that's oriented more towards wisdom. Um, but what interest, what I found really interesting in the introducing mindfulness book is though, though it is very accessible for um, beginners, you're actually constantly situating some of the debates um, about mind, what mindfulness actually is, what it is accompanied by, what context it comes from. So some of those I was quite interested in. So, for example, the idea of mindfulness for health. Um, and whether or not that's a legitimate thing to do, I think that's part of the debate, isn't it? Should we should we be whoever we are? Should we be using mindfulness in these ways to attend to daily problems of everyday life? Yeah, and you come out very strongly that that the answer is yes. Yeah, that uh, this was uh, in fact the uh, first really major finding I made when I started in this mindfulness research that I 
came across this discourse where uh, the Buddha reportedly teaches King Pasenadi mindfulness mm. to help him to come out of overeating. Mm. And this is just such a clear-cut precedence. Mm. Mm. I mean, it's 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 uh, Pasenadi, and I, I I searched a little bit more Pasenadi, King Pasenadi, the way he's depicted in the suttas. This is just a typical petty Indian king, you know. He wants he wants women and he wants to win his wars, and he's certainly not going to become a monk. And I doubt he will ever have really meditated. And he's just eating too much because he gets so much good food, you know. <laughs> and then the Buddha gives him this this uh, this 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 beautiful uh, passage. It's a very beautiful short thing and just simply basically saying that the key is to be to to to, to know one's measure with food. Mm. And that mindfulness is the tool for that. Mm. And the fascinating part, and it continues, there's some other people also there that have come together with the king to visit the Buddha. And the Buddha then says to this young Brahmin, you, you memorize this. Mm. I pay you mm. a hundred kapanas or whatever it is, the ancient coins, and you have to recite it every day for my meal. So this is actually a paid mindfulness instructor. Mm. Mm. The Buddha doesn't object. He doesn't say, no, 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 my teachings are not for money. No, he just, he, he must have taught it to this young Brahmin. Yeah. And the Brahmin then gets his money and does the job, and Pasinati loses weight. Mm -hmm. And the Sutta ends with Pasinati stroking his body and saying, Ha, ah, the Buddha really helped me. <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, it's just so sweet. It's a great and, image. I mean, it is a very marginal aspect of the early suttas, very clearly. I have not found another instance of this type. It is also clear that mindfulness in early Buddhism is a very strong soteriological orientation towards awakening, no doubt. But there is also a place for this. And if in the early suttas there is place for this, then why should we nowadays stand up and say, no, no, they are stealing something, they are misappropriating religious property or whatever you and presumably the uh, motivation of the Buddha in that instance and the motivation of many of the people who are teaching mindfulness is, is compassion, is a response exactly. to a form of suffering. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You have a very uh, interesting take on compassion that is also quite different perhaps from some of the contemporary psychological research or, or how compassion, you make a distinction between how compassion is viewed in early Buddhism and how it uh, is read in later traditions in Buddhism. Um, how important is this kind of understanding of compassion to what's happening in these uh, more secular mindfulness spaces? But you know, the distinction that I uh, draw based on the early suttas actually matches very much uh, current research in psychology. Okay. They are actually said they're using, using even two different terms. They use compassion and empathy. Mm. And empathy is where you then get empathy fatigue mm. because you're taking in the pain of others. Right. And they make a, there's, there's a whole current of making the, the, the very clear distinction because, I mean, the, the, the doctor who has the patient in front of herself, she has to be open to get a sense of what's happening with the patient, but she should not be taking in the pain of the patient 
because if she does that day, day in, day out, she would just get exhausted and burnt out. And so this, this, this necessity to navigate between becoming just blank and not really opening to the patient or to, to whatever suffering there is there and making that suffering our own, mm. something that to my knowledge in psychology is very well recognized. Mm. And uh, I, 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 and this is in fact a, a task for mindfulness. Then mm. it's mindfulness she's then monitoring and seeing. I mean, this is even for me in my practice. Of course, I'm not a doctor, but like uh, climate change, for example, uh, or, or even racism here in the in the states. Mm. There are some very burning social problems which we have to face, and we have to do something about it. But we have to keep that balance. Yeah. So that we don't get overwhelmed, yeah. because then it's either getting totally overwhelmed, or the other is then 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 it's too much and turning away. Yeah, and mindfulness is the quality that helps us always stir this this middle path, where where the compassion is there, but there's also uh, the instability. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe a good. We'll come and talk a little bit later about in a way, this, the ways in which you're researching and also proposing the application of mindfulness to these kinds of issues of social and climate uh, justice or harm. Um, but I, I was interested, one of the things you say about uh, your the, that second book, which is more aimed at um, people who are researching and teaching who want a greater depth of understanding, is one of the things that you do is outline or try and emphasize the breadth of mindfulness and what that term might cover and the fact that mindfulness always um, in a way appears with other things also other qualities of mind uh, alongside them so mindfulness doesn't sort of stand on itself or certainly doesn't stand ethically on its on its uh, own in its own way and you come up with this sort of characteristics and functions of mindfulness that you you call pearl, which I think is really sweet. It's very easy to remember <laughs> for those of us who aren't used to remembering and reciting lots. Um, what, is, what does pearl stand for and, and why, do you, why do you draw it out like this? Well, you know, that's just one way of me taking, taking up uh, my subjective impression of mindfulness. Mm. But I think in order to uh, get things more clear, it would be important to distinguish between mindfulness as such, uh, a quality as such, and mindfulness in the context of the establishment of mindfulness, the satipatthanas. Mm. Because mindfulness as such can even be unwholesome in early Buddhism. Yeah. Or it can be, I just wrote an article on that, this, this, the, what, we, what we call the cowherd's mindfulness. Mm. which has this very beautiful image of uh, the cowherd, uh, uh, he or she, probably he in the ancient Indian setting, when the, they, they, they had to uh, collect all these cows from different households and then take them out for grazing. And at the time when the crop was ripe, the cow has to be very, very careful because the cows obviously, <laughs> they want to eat the crop. And so the cow has to hit them. But when the crop has been harvested, the cow can just be relaxed and watch them from a distance. And the Pali uses sati for that, sati karaniyam. Still has to watch because these cows, if they amble off, it will be trouble, but doesn't have to stay close to them. Mm. But uh, if our cow does that for his or her whole life, it's not going to take them any closer to awakening. Mm. 
if they become a monk or a nun, then because they have some training in mindfulness, they might have some facilitation there. But this is a type of mindfulness that doesn't really lead, that doesn't have this liberating uh, dimension. Mm. And so in, in psychology, they are really researching this, um, what are the components of mindfulness that are transformative? And there is this monitoring and acceptance theory so they, they say the two main components is monitoring, this sort of like being present to a situation, attentive, and then acceptance, which is the equanimity, non-judgmental kind of dimension. And this then we can match on these qualities that, that come in with Satipatthana, mm -hmm. where it is, um, take the case of body contemplation. First of all, it's kaya, kayanuparsi, so contemplating the body in relation to the body which I understand to really convey this sense of being with what is there without proliferating it, mm. just as it is. And then there is atapi, which I translate as diligent. It's a very strong term. It has this tapas connotation of uh, even ascetic practices. The need to dedicate ourselves to it. Mindfulness, and this is something I disagree with my colleagues in psychology. They do this intervention of teaching people for five minutes mindfulness, and then they start measuring the results. And I'm like, hey guys, <laughs> <laughs> this stuff needs a lot of time mm. and dedication. Mm. And then Sampajanya, and this is also something they don't have so clear in psychology, the need for wisdom clear comprehension, clear knowing, this, this, this understanding dimension that I, I, I see something with my eyes, and then I understand. Mm. That is the transformative thing. And then in Naya Lokya Bija Domanasam, they're being free from desire and aversion would be this uh, acceptance or equanimity part. Mm. But I think particularly the wisdom part is, 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 is it's, it's there in their research. Like my friend, uh, Judd Brewer, he has done this research with people who uh, are addicted to smoking mm -hmm. and who have tried in different ways to stop and have been able, and he just teaches them to be mindful. Mm -hmm. And then they watch, and then they were like, wow, this tastes horrible. <laughs> the, the, the basic realization that what they have, or oh, so cool, and then they taste, and it just tastes disgusting, and they stop smoking. Mm -hmm. Hmm. That's not just mindfulness, that's sampajanya, that's wisdom, that's understanding. Hmm. 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 And my pearl goes in a little bit of a different direction, it's just another perspective. I mean, one is mindfulness protects us. Hmm. As this, this protective dimension. And this is this is really, I mean. Mm -hmm. Whenever I run into trouble, afterwards I look back and say, brother, you were not mindful. So when I'm mindful, I kind of, I, I have my way of stirring through the traffic of everyday life. And then every problem becomes part of the path. Then you embody it. This is, this is really important for me, especially in the West. We have to get into the body. Mm. We have to have this somatic dimension in our practice. I, when I was living in Asia. I found people, I didn't find this so striking because people are somehow naturally more, more grouped than individual, more in the body than just in the brain. 
But here in the West, people are, in my experience, they're so individualized mm-hmm. and they basically just live in this upper part of their of their body from 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 the, from the chin upwards. They're just all in the head. And so I find it's really important to, 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 to come to the body, to arrive in the body, to inhabit the body, to, to become embodied. Yeah. And yeah. this is the Kaya Gatasati. This I find that really important then, well, attentive, receptive, and liberating. These are more dimensions that relate more to what I just earlier discussed from this monotonic acceptance theory. But the pearl is not uh, like the final truth. It's just one playful image tool. And I, I hope everybody takes it and picks out some parts that work and leaves out other parts. I'm not having any kind of uh, truth declaration behind that. It's just one playful image tool. Yeah. But the idea of the pearl itself, that there's something that is irritating. Mm-hmm. And then uh, in order to, to 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 smoothen that out, the, the, these covers of I don't uh, remember the English name now for this uh, something calcite, is. isn't it? I'm not. Yeah, quite yeah, yeah. Do <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. it <laughs> around, and out of it comes this beautiful pearl. Yeah. And this is the, the 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 crucial difference also between mindfulness and other forms of meditation practice, such as like concentration, particularly if it's focus concentration. That mindfulness makes us really appreciate the problems in life mm-hmm. because the opportunities for growth. Yeah. We don't want the difficult people to get out so I can finally do what I want. Or we want it's it's really it's all this 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 working with conditions as they are. Mm-hmm. And precisely because of that, then more and more diminishing of this ego sense of wanting to control, mm-hmm. wanting to have everything our way. Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about um, your method, uh, which some people might know a lot about and some people might not in the work that you've doing. And it's a method that's very, very generative in your sort of research agenda of comparing uh, texts from different recitation traditions, different uh, languages over time. Uh, well, perhaps, well, perhaps instead of me explaining what your method is, perhaps you could say a little bit about um, how it is that you work across these different canons, if you like. And that is not really my method, you know, that is an established method in the field of uh, Buddhist studies. It's just that uh, uh, due to particular patterns and fashions that the field goes through, there has been very little attention to early Buddhism in recent times and you need to know a lot of languages to be able to access the primary sources. And so I have just come out with a lot of work on that. But the basic idea is simply that the teachings of the Buddha and his disciples were passed on by oral transmission for centuries. Mm. And oral transmission is not that reliable. There's always chances for errors to occur. Sometimes somebody gives an explanation it's just a personal explanation, but in the course of time, it actually becomes part of the text. And so we have um, different lineages of this oral transmission. One is the one that most of us know as the Pali tradition. This went from India to Sri Lanka in the language of Pali and is now accessible in the Pali sutras. But other of these lineages also went in other directions. And we can access these some of these in, uh, in another language called Gandhari, which uh, in uh, in the north of in India, we have some fragments because these are very mountainous kind of areas mm. where 
birch bark fragments could survive for a long time and being researched somehow in more like Buddhist Sanskrit. And then also some of these uh, oral transmissions were brought to China, mm. translated into Chinese. The whole was also brought to Tibet and translated into Tibetan, but then there was a persecution and it was lost. So we have only very little material in Tibetan. But we have all these Indian oral transmission lineages of these teachings available in these different languages. Mm-hmm. So by placing them side by side, somewhat similar to how people would study the Gospels, you have like certain parts that are very similar. And so there it seems reasonable that this is relatively early. And we have other parts where one is like this and one is like that. And sometimes one just sees they're different. But sometimes one sees like, well, there are some reasons to think that this one is a later edition. Mm. And some of these later editions are particularly fascinating because they show us beginning developments uh, in, in, in Buddhist thought, the beginning of uh, the Bodhisattva ideal Mahayana, the beginnings of Dharma. Mm. tendencies to, to, to eulogize the Buddha more and more. There are all these tendencies that we can observe through this comparative study. Mm. And in the case of mindfulness in particular, for me, <clears throat> the problem that I always had was how to put all these four establishments of mindfulness in, into practice. Mm. It was the way they appear in the Satipatthana Sutta. I just didn't see a way how to combine all four. But in many other texts, we get uh, the mention of just these four and this feeling that they belong somewhere together. And by comparing with the Chinese parallels, I was able to kind of say like, oh, oh, these are the central aspects of each of the four satipatthanas. And then based on just identifying these uh, more key exercises, without taking the position that the others are like wrong or whatever, but just saying that this is this stands more in the forefront and the others are more at the background, mm-hmm. I was able to bring them together in a continuous form of practice that covers all four satipatthanas, mm-hmm. all four establishments of mindfulness. It's, it's an interesting project and a, a, an enduring project. You know, you've written a lot about Satipatthana, mindfulness of breathing, other practice practices that are core in this way, looking through these multiple texts. Um, and I wonder, you know, in some ways you're trying to work out what is uh, earliest. Presumably that also means to some degree more reliable. I don't know if that would be an, um, uh, if that's the case. I'm curious. Well, I I think uh, that it is very useful to have this distinction between early and later in order to have a historical perspective. But I would re- like to refrain from imposing any kind of value judgments on them. Okay. I would very strongly object against some form of early Buddhist fundamentalism. Yeah. And in fact, some of the things we get in later teaching are just so beautiful. Mm. Mm. And I mean, there are some things in the early suttas with which I simply disagree. And I think later tradition got the better point there, maybe. So I would avoid any kind of value judgment and would simply say that this this kind of early later distinction enables us to have a historical perspective. But then where we as practitioners position ourselves is completely up to us. You know, sometimes the early part may be resonating, sometimes something later may be resonating. 
Yeah. I mean, one very simple example, I am an absolutely strict vegetarian since a small, my youth, but the Buddha was not a vegetarian and didn't even make his uh, lay disciples vegetarian, even though they could have. Mm-hmm. So actually we owe vegetarianism to Mahayana, particularly to the Lankavatara Sutra. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Important. Mm-hmm. So it's not early, good, later, bad. Never, never get into that one. That, that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Does it? Um, I suppose I'm sort of fascinated by the position that you're able to be in through your facility with languages and your familiarity with all of these texts. Um, in a way, I've got I've got quite a few questions that are more in a way intellectual. I'm curious about where that leads and what the distinctions are that are helpful. And on the other hand. Um, as a, as a practitioner, I sort of want to ask you, like, who was the Buddha? Because not many people can get very close, uh, have the knowledge and the familiarity with the languages to get a sense of um, what it might have been like uh, to be near the Buddha, around the Buddha. Yeah, but you see, these uh, sources can only take us to about uh, two centuries after the time of the Buddha, what people at that time thought was the Buddha. Yeah. So the quest for certainty about the historical Buddha is, in my view, misplaced. Mm. And Mm. when I talk about the Buddha, I talk about the Buddha basically as a literary figure. Yeah. uh, But that is the more important one, actually. Because it's the way the Buddha was described in this text that has been a lasting inspiration for centuries to come in all Buddhist traditions. So, so we're always imagining the Buddha. Dhammamika, is there anything that we are not imagining? No. Well, not as mo- not the moment you come into relationship with concepts, for example, or language or even visual images that we have of those things, yeah. All our perceptions are ultimately constructed and never an objective 100% reflection of reality. So it's probably good not to approach anything in this black and white uh, matter. Mm. This is reality and truth. This is just imagination. But see, it's to some degree all imagination. Yeah. Yeah, I don't actually mean imagination in a negative sense. I mean that like we're all actively engaging with uh, the Buddha uh, in in the ways that we can and in the ways that we have the resources to do uh, as as a figure. I I don't necessarily mean imagination in a negative sense at all, but like that our imaginations more be enriched or, or less enriched depending on what we know. Uh, or what we have exposure to. Yeah, but I mean, the Buddha that we can meet in the early discourses was not interested in telling about himself. Mm. He was interested in the teachings. Yeah, yeah. And when Ananda was there uh, all upset because the Buddha had been sick and he was afraid that the Buddha might pass away, I would say, no. Take refuge in yourself, Ananda. Take refuge in the teachings. And how to do that? Through mindfulness. Mm. 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 It's it's the teachings that are important and our own practice and our own verification of the fact that, look, I've been practicing for so and so many years and I've changed. 
I'm a different person. Such and such defilements are still there, but such and such defilements are gone. Mm. This is this is really the key, I think. Mm. Yeah. And very clear. And then there's a deep sense of gratitude to the person who discovered and made this possible. Mm. And a sense of responsibility of myself wanting to contribute for others for this to be available. But it's not uh, it's not so much about this particular individual person as such. Mm. So thank you, Bhikkhu and Alio, for that part of the conversation. We're going to leave Analio here for now. And in the next episode, we'll explore the application of mindfulness to some of the main social and environmental justice issues that we face. What can the early Buddhist teaching say to us in the world we live in today? I hope you join us for that. Wintour's Publications is part of the Tree Ratna Buddhist community. And this podcast is sponsored by Future Dharma Fund, a Buddhist fundraising charity which helps fund Dharma projects across the world, including ours. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider donating to them to help them fund current and future projects like ours. You can find out more about Wintour's publications by going to our website.